If I've not met you, my name's Alex. I'm the pastor here, but I'm part of a larger team here, all of whom have worked so hard just to put this afternoon on. So can we give the band and the volunteers just a, a big thank you? Man, I've been looking forward to this for months now, and it's an absolute delight. And I've been preaching our Christmas series in the lead-up to this, and something I want to go on the record as saying, because I don't think I've said it yet, but I want to go on the record as saying that I love Christmas, right? Does anyone else love Christmas? Right on. It's a good time of year. I love the paraphernalia involved. I love the Christmas trees. I love the cookies. We did like a gingerbread sort of baking decoration competition recently, and that sounds as wild as it is, I, I promise. Um, and I, I particularly love the movies. Um, it's about that time of year where mine and my wife's date nights, they sort of devolve into us staying home, settling in onto the couch, and putting on one of our favorite Christmas movies. That's where we're at this time of year. Aircon's on, we're on the couch, and Elf, Will Ferrell, is just chilling there, talking to us for a good hour and a half. Um, but we've all got favorite Christmas movies, right? But one thing that's not the case is that we've got the same favorite Christmas movie. And so I thought I might just, you know, go to the floor for a second. Kids, you can participate in this one. I thought we might just ask, ask the floor what our favorite Christmas movie might be. And to do that, I just want you to raise your hand if the movie I list is your favorite Christmas movie, okay? Easy enough? We can all participate? Come on, awesome. So the first one that comes to my mind is The Holiday. Raise your hand if The Holiday is your, famous Christmas, your favorite Christmas movie. Shame on you. <laughs> oh, I wish you weren't alone. I scripted Shame on You, but now it feels bad because... Anyway, that's terrible. Um, all right, hand up if your favorite Christmas movie is Love Actually. Yes, okay. Yeah, bit of a classic. No worries. That's fine. Yeah, bit of a classic. All right, now a real classic, like an actual classic. Hands up if your favorite Christmas movie is It's a Wonderful Life. Okay, couple of hands, couple of hands. Um, I'm just trying to think. Um, what if your favorite... Okay, this, yeah, this is a good one. Put up your hand if your favorite Christmas movie is Die Hard. Okay, okay, rightly so, rightly so. And last one, Millennial's favorite. Put your hand up if your favorite movie is Home Alone. I see those hands. Great, okay. And I'd love to ask the kids, if you on the count of three can yell out your favorite Christmas movie, I would love to hear it. So on the count of three, yell out your favorite Christmas movie. One, two, three. I don't think that's in cinema, but uh, here's the question I've got this afternoon. What makes a Christmas movie a Christmas movie? What makes a Christmas movie a Christmas movie? Like when you step back, you've watched it for a while, you've enjoyed it, you had a few laughs, you've maybe sort of gotten older so you see the innuendo in some of the Christmas movies like The Grinch, and, but you step back and you ask the question, what makes a Christmas movie a Christmas movie? What metrics are we using to judge whether it is indeed something Christmassy? Now, if you were to ask Hollywood that question, here's what I think they'd say. I reckon they'd say that a Christmas movie is a Christmas movie if there's snow involved. So, you know, it's immediately set in the Northern Hemisphere. If there's snow involved, if there are presents uh, at risk of not being delivered, if the soundtrack has a tambourine in it, and, and if the father of a stereotypical nuclear family is at risk of not coming home in time for Christmas because his desk job and his career-winning, bread-winning vocation is just beating him to the stick right to the 25th. That's what Hollywood would say, am I right? That's the tension of every Christmas movie. But what would a Christian say? 
A Christian would say that Christmas is about Jesus. That Christmas, unashamedly, unhinderedly, without reservation, is about Jesus Christ. And we as a church here in the heart of Brisbane City, we'd say no less that every year we look forward to this part of the year because we get to adore and set our imagination and our affection and our attention on the King who is Jesus. Now, I'll be straight. That very phrase, that very idea, that very concept, it might just sound like gibberish to you. And if that is you, I would just say, you're like me when I was 15 years old before I was a Christian. Before I was a Christian, I remember people would talk about this Jesus guy, and I remember hearing them talk about him and think, man, what does this first century Jewish carpenter have to do with my life, right? This guy's just a person from history. He's nothing more special than that. Sure, there's about 2.2 billion people that are deluded about this guy, but he's got nothing to do with me. What could Jesus have to possibly do with my life? Is there any relevance of Jesus to my life? Is there any evidence of the life of Jesus? This is the kind of question that I had, and that might be your question in the room this afternoon. What does Jesus have to do with my life? life. But then I went to church and I heard the story and I genuinely encountered God and my life transformed and backflipped and was forever changed. And now this time is not something that I dread or am confused about or need more questions answered about. It's a time that I look forward to and celebrate because this time of year I get to celebrate Jesus. But the question I want to answer for you tonight is, well, why? What happened? What changed? And for me, it's because I heard this idea articulated by the writers of the biography of Jesus that they articulated in the New Testament that changed me. I heard this idea. Now, if you go to the New Testament, there's four books that claim to tell the biography of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you went to a private school, you'll know their names, right? Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they each claim to tell two things, really. One, what happened? And two, why what happened matters. They, they give us two things. One, the history of Jesus' life. And two, the meaning of Jesus' life. Now, the history of Jesus' life, it's pretty straightforward. He lived. You know, and Christians will say a whole host more than that. They'll say he lived, he died, he was raised again, he was ascended. But here's the base fact. Jesus lived. That's, that's a very straightforward fact from history. But the question as to why he lived, what his mission was, what his purpose was. When I found out what that was, it completely changed my life. And one guy articulates it so well. He looks at the life of Jesus. His name's John. And he thinks, what's God doing in the person of Jesus? And here's what John concludes. It's a famous Christian passage. Might have, you might have heard it. John says this. John 3, chapter, six, John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whosoever shall believe in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that he might save the world through him. And when I got this picture straight in my mind about the heart of God and what he's trying to do in and for humanity, it completely changed my vision, completely changed my world. Because here's what John is saying in this passage. He's saying that God loves and God gives. That when you boil it all down, and you reflect on the life of Jesus and the whole mission that he had and what he's trying to do. Here's what, God, here's what John says. He says God loves and God gives. And I'd love to just unpack those two ideas for us this afternoon. And to do this, I want us to zoom in on the idea of gift, on the notion of gift. Now, where are my kids at? Can I get a shout from the kids? That is not a shout, right? Where are my kids at? 
Come on, awesome. So kids, we've got a little gift for you. Now, we had these high hopes of being able to curate the, the time with which you unwrap those gifts. Those hopes were dashed. Um, but you might find, yes, yeah, Anna, Anna, you've got it going on, that's great. The last gift that you've got is this little thing, and it's, it's like Play-Doh from the year 3000. This thing is amazing. Myself and Brent, who is emceeing, we played for this like for an hour when we were wrapping gifts the other night. Um, and so this is our little gift to you. It's just a token, um, but I, I hope you enjoy it. A little gift for you. Um, I think we can all agree, stepping back from this tokenistic gift, I think we can all agree, right, that when we give gifts, it's because we're trying to express something of our love for the, the person that we're giving it to. Now, there's exceptions to that, <coughs> family, um, but... It's because we're trying to express something of the love that we have for the people that we're giving gifts to. Um, think about someone you love. Think about someone you care for. Might be a friend, a family member, a colleague, a caretaker, a parent, a kid. And think about what you're doing when you give them a gift, when you take time out of your regular, regular schedule and, and pause and think, man, would they like this? Would this meet them where they're at? Would this bless them? What, what are you trying to do? You're trying to take the love you have, you're trying to funnel it into something tangible and pass it on so it might evidence and give witness to the love that you have for them. Gifts are motivated by love. Now, I think I speak for all of us when I say giving gifts is good, but receiving gifts, it's great. <laughs> Stunning. And I think there's a few things we learn uh, about someone when we receive a gift. Um, think about the times you've received a gift you really, really loved. Just pause it. Put it in your mind. What did it say to you? What did it speak to you? When I was in my early teens, I really wanted a downhill mountain bike. Just so you know, I got street cred. I wanted a downhill mountain bike. Matte black, giant, cost about $1,000. But I did not expect to get a downhill mountain bike because... This thing was so expensive, we didn't have the money, we were sort of doing Christmas with my grandparents, and so the logistics of it just wouldn't add up. But then, Christmas Day, I woke up, went to the lounge room, to the Christmas tree, and how do you wrap a bike up, right? Parents, you might have experienced this. Before me was a bike. So I unwrapped this bike, and there before me is this giant, downhill, matte black, beautiful bike. And I remember thinking three things that year. Three things that year. One, my parents must really know me because they knew I wanted this bike. Two, they must really love me. And three, I know the lengths that they went to to secure this for me. And that's what good gifts do. Think about it. Bring to your mind the gift I asked you to think of before. Here's what a good gift should say to you when you receive it. It should say, one, this person really knows me. They've taken time out of their regular schedule to think of me and what I need and where I'm at. Two, this person really loves me. And three, I know the lengths that they probably went to to secure this for me. They might have lined up at the store. They might have ran through the, you know, the bustling crowds of Westfield. I know the lengths they went to to secure it for me. And here's the thing I want to say to you this afternoon. It, it's these three things that John is trying to help us see. John is saying that God has given us a gift in Jesus. And that gift reveals how much he knows us how much he loves us, and the lengths that he'd go to to secure that gift for us. And he does that by making a series of claims in this passage. Let me just walk them through real quick. The first claim that John makes is this, that humanity is broken and needs rescue. How do I know that? Because the phrase in verse 17 simply says that God's come to save the world. 
to rescue the world, to redeem it, renew it, reconcile it to himself. That's the imagery. That's the purpose of Jesus' mission. Now, this language, I'll admit, it's super strange, but it's deeply important. It's important because so many people have this idea that to be a Christian, you have to have yourself all figured out, all together. You have to be the perfectly morally righteous person, have all your ducks in a row, be winning at life. And here's the point that John would make as he assumes the brokenness of the world in this passage. He would just say that the Bible can't let you think that for too long. That the story of humanity is not a story of people who are perfect, but a story of people who are askew, beautiful and broken all at the same time. And John assumes that when he talks about the mission of Jesus. I love what Aslan said in one of the Narnia novels. Aslan's talking to some people in a crowd, and Aslan describes humanity like this. He said, uh, in the mouth of the lion, he said, you come of the Lord Adam and the lady Eve, and that is both honor enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor. In other words, the biblical worldview says that humanity is beautiful and broken all at the same time, that we've got disordered desires that play to distorted ideas and we find ourselves turned in on ourselves, not outward to God, others, and the world. This is John's first claim that humanity is broken and in need of rescue. And here's what that might mean for you if you're in the room this afternoon. It might mean you can breathe a little. Why? Because you don't have to have it all together to be in church. You don't have to have your life fixed up to sit in the pew. You don't have to be morally person to be able to be part of what God's doing in this world. You actually just need to be aware of the brokenness you've got. In fact, the thing that God's looking for is not perfectly moral people. He's looking for people who know they aren't and who are honest about the fact that they aren't. He's looking for those who just say, yeah, I think that's me. For better and worse, I think that's me. And this is the first claim that John makes, that humanity is broken. The second claim is this, that God is a lover. God is a lover. Now, John looks at the life of Jesus and he concludes this. He's like, man, it must be the case that God is so filled with love. In fact, John would later write a letter to a series of churches and he would say this. He would say, God is love. God is love. Now, I don't know if you have ever, you know, tried to describe yourself to someone or you're describing someone to someone else. But usually what we do is we make identity statements. And when you, when you say that someone is something, what you're doing is you're saying that that's the most foundational, fundamental, central thing about them. I'll give you a few examples. You know, you'd say Taylor Swift is a singer-songwriter. J.K. Rowling is a novelist. Justin Bieber is an angel. <laughs> what you're doing is you're saying this is so central about them. It doesn't mean that other things aren't true, but it means that, hey, if you were to boil it all down, what is this person? And here's what John says about God. God is love. I don't know what idea you have about God. Some people think that God is sort of like a cosmic Santa Claus. He's distant, he is performance-driven, and he's just waiting for you to slip up so he can punish you. Other people think that God is like a passive father. He's disinterested, disengaged, maybe he's a bit clinical, He's invisible, and he couldn't care less about you. But here's what John says about God. God is a loving father. God is driven by, motivated by, overflowing with love. That's who God is. It's what we mean when we talk about God. 
And so here's what I want to say to you this afternoon. I've got it on good authority. This isn't a generalistic idea about God being loving. Think about yourself. How could God feel towards you? This rocked me more than 10 years ago. Because here's what God would say. God loves you. Despite your background, despite your flaws, despite your failures, even in the face of your successes, God loves you. And he means it. That's John's second claim. And the third claim is this, that Jesus is God's gift for you. See, remember how I said that we, we give gifts because we take our love and we funnel them through something tangible and we give them over to evidence this love that we have for someone. That's what God's done in Jesus. See, in Jesus, the Christian story says that God made us for himself, but we turned our backs on him and turned into ourselves and away from the God who made us, which separated us from him. But God, rich in love, powerful in mercy, reached out in the person of Jesus. How so? He lived the life that we should have. He died the death that we deserved by virtue of our sin and brokenness. And he made a way for each of us, regardless of where we're at, to be reconciled to God in Jesus Christ. To be reconciled to God in Jesus Christ here and now. And this is what John means by salvation and eternal life in these two verses that we read. It just means that being reconciled back to God who made us for himself, being forgiven of our sin, being restored to the relationship and the purpose for which we were always intended. This is the vision that the Bible holds out for humanity and this is the claims that John is making and inviting us to consider. Life to the full and life unto forever. That's the invitation of the Christian story. So let me put it in these terms. When God stepped into history, here's what he was trying to reveal about himself. He's actually trying to reveal how much he knows you. How much he knows you, where you're at, the brokenness you carry around. He's trying to reveal to you how much he loves you and that he was prepared to go to the lengths that he went to to secure life and life to the full for you. That's what God's trying to communicate in this gift that we call Jesus. It's the greatest gift. Why? Because in the Christian story, this gift is the giver himself. And every good gift, it does these three things, but it does something else. It brings you closer to the giver. Think about when you give a gift. You don't want to just give it, walk away, and say, peace out, see you later, great to know you. You hope that that gift would bring communion. And God hopes no less. God hopes no less. The greatest gift on offer is the giver himself, and Jesus would love to give himself to each and every one of us. Not just now, but every moment you're awake, every moment you're living and breathing. And so here's my question this afternoon, just as the band rolls on up. My question this afternoon is this, do you know that gift? There's a whole host of gifts around this Christmas. Do you know this one? When I started following Jesus more than 12 years ago, this gift changed my life. Didn't make me perfect straight away. Heck, not there now. Ask those close to me. But it put me on a journey, at the center of which is love, being known and being loved. Here's how Tim Keller, a pastor from the States, would put it. God knows you to the depths, loves you to the skies. Let that transform your life. So the question I've got this afternoon is this. Do you know this gift? Here's how Isaac Watts, the cow writer, put it. So joy to the world, the Lord is come, let earth receive her king. And then get this line. 
Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. Every gift needs receiving, unwrapping, and enjoying. You might be wondering, God. And the answer is the same with Jesus. You receive this gift. And you do that really simply, just by talking to him in prayer. It's not magical. It's not a silver bullet. Heck. But it's the start of a conversation which will echo in your life into eternity. And so I'd love you to stand with me this afternoon as we jump into what I hope is now a participatory carol. (laughs) But I'd love to pray. And I'd love to invite you to pray along with me. And if you find yourself far from God, distant from God, here's what I'd say to you this afternoon. You don't need to be. And if you find yourself stirred, stirred to want to receive this gift, the gift of life now, love forever, and life to the full into eternity, I'd invite you. Pray this prayer with me. It's really simple. Thank you, God, for what you've done. Sorry for how I've lived, and please come into my life. And so why don't we close our eyes and just fix our hearts on God? And let me pray. And if you'd like to, pray along with me, just in the quiet of your own heart. God, thank you for the gift you've made available in Jesus, the gift of relationship with you and life with you. Father, sorry that I've lived my life without reference to you or turned my back on you. And God, please come into my life again. Fill me, make me yours, and help me follow after Jesus. Help me learn what it means to enjoy the gift that you've given me in him. Because it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Friends, we're going we're gonna to sing in a moment. And if you join me in that prayer, I'd just invite you, just sing with all your heart out. If you've been a Christian for a while, I'd say the same thing. Sing with all your heart out. If you're unsure about this Jesus guy still, then join us for a conversation afterwards or chat with one of our host team or uh, join us for something that I'll announce in the next little segment. But guys, can I encourage you? We've just finished an entire series through Advent and our tagline's been this, inhabiting Advent by adoring King Jesus. And this, this moment could be the same for us. And so let's enjoy the King together with the time that we've got left.